Reverend. You can have any truth you want. Walk, talk, address a duke, a lord, a bishop, an ambassador. It's absolutely impossible. of the Projections Podcast. We are Sarah, Catherine Cleaver and Mary Wilde and we like to use psychoanalysis to talk about film and film to talk about life. We're back with a series of episodes exploring fashion films. We'll be running through themes including controlling creation, desiring desire, violence and bodies, consuming and corruption, fetish, reading clothes and disguise and secrets as well as anything else that happens to come up during our sessions. We're especially fascinated by the relationship between fashion and death, and we've chosen films that represent this intriguing dynamic. Join us for an in-depth investigation of fashion films. Bye! Hi, Sarah. Hi, Mary. <laughs> so this is our second um, installment in the kind of sub theme of fetishism in our fashion film series. Yes, we kind of pieced it together as we were recording the last one. Yeah. Uh, we decided we wanted to look at shopping a yeah. little bit, and we found two films that fit within that kind of idea, which were Vertigo, 1958, and Pretty Woman, 1990. Exactly. And I'm very conscious of the fact that um, when I was kind of researching these two films, there were some additional theoretical uh, concepts that I wanted to just inject right at the very start Please to do, do with it. fetishism because yeah we had already sort of discussed in the last episode that uh, the term fetishism uh, first came into widespread use in the 18th century in the context of the study of primitive religions mm-hmm. in, um, and the fact that Karl Marx actually borrowed that term to describe the way that in capitalist societies uh, social relations assume an illusory form of relations between things. So we had already touched on this idea of commodity fetishism. Um, but for Freud, um, fetishism, he, well, he actually almost ex- exclusively talked about fetishism in relation to male perversion. Mm. Um, and he believed that it originated in the child's horror of female castration. And he, so he believed that, I mean, this is kind of, I think, growing out of a very clumsy um, a- aspect of Freudian theory, which mm-hmm. I'm very critical of. Like, I, even though I'm a, a, a faithful follower of Freud in other respects, his his ideas around penis envy and castration anxiety, I feel like they need to be um, developed a yeah. lot more. Well, it's and... like starting with the murder and working backwards. Exactly. Like you're a crime writer. It's just, <laughs> so that's such a yeah. good way of putting it. Yeah. Absolutely. So he's correct about the he's correct about the symptom and about the the anxiety, the anxiety, but not necessarily about the origin. No, exactly. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's a good way of putting it. Um, because for in his mind, particularly living in those Victorian times, where uh, women were much more oppressed compared to the times we live in today, although there is still oppression today, um, he was um, theorizing that when the the a male child is confronted with their mother's lack of a penis, 
um, there's a fetishism that develops out of that, which disavows this lack. So it's this kind of refusal to confront the, the, the reality of there not being a penis. Um, and then what they do to compensate or kind of a coping mechanism to deal with that is that they find an object as a symbolic substitute for the mother's missing penis. This becomes then the fetish. Yeah, they're always trying to cover up the lack. Mm -hmm. um, so for Lacan, I mean, he being a Freudian himself, he was a post-structuralist, he was more of a philosopher in that regard. I think he, he uh, positively uh, developed this penis envy thing in the sense of um, sort of not necessarily making it about the physical male penis, like the, that aspect of it, anatomy, but talking then more about the phallus, which is not gendered, and it's just a central control of, centralized control of power, like centralized, um, yeah, so I guess, uh, steer of power. And he talked about how um, we will still disavow castration, where we see someone as lacking power in some way, or them not being in possession of something that we interpret as being a symbol of power. Mm -hmm. And that creates conflict in us. And so we then start to create some symbol that covers up the lack. And we, 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 fet we fetishize that symbol. Um, but it has to start with the subject perceiving a lack in the other. It has to start from there. Um, and that's where then the, per, you know, the pervert fetishist, uh, to use psychoanalytic terms, um, they, yeah, ultimately just refuse to accept the reality of this traumatic perception, which actually causes trauma in them, mm -hmm. that they're not aware of it. So instead, um, the fetish is an object um, that becomes a symbolic substitute for the other's missing phallus, the other's missing center of power. Um, and that then veils um, something uh, that, for the pervert, is unknowable, um, something that's beyond symbolization, because they want to avoid an encounter with it. The other's perceived lack is so... Uh, upsetting and discom discombobulating that they have to put some other object in front of it to cover it up. Otherwise, um, th that encounter uh, actually exacerbates the feeling of trauma. So yeah, ultimately the perverse subject uh, is um, located as uh, an object of the drive and then becomes a kind of means of the other's enjoyment. Because Lacan said that um, there is this kind of uh, structure, this discursive structure that is formed around fetishism where there has to be some kind of obedience to some law or some, uh, you know, way of acting. And we, there has to be absolute following of that letter of the law. We have to obey the, the language of the pervert and the fetishist. So, for example, uh, let's say just to use like in BDSM culture, certain objects are fetishized, uh, but there has to be con a, a consent between all the partners involved, that they, the way that they treat each other and the objects in their sexual relations. Everyone has to follow the same rules, mm -hmm. otherwise it doesn't work, it falls apart. There has to be a, conscience, a conscious acceptance of what those rules are. And 
otherwise yeah it falls apart and I just feel like that process of obedience um, to what is perceived as fetish and what is actually functioning in the service of uh, avoiding that lack uh, and covering it up with other things I think it's really happening in these two films, in Pretty Woman and in Vertigo. Yeah, I mean, we kind of pick these films. We uh, we always we always say this, but these films, they're almost. There are moments when they're almost the same film. Yeah, it's scary. It's really strange. And I never <laughs> would have put them together beforehand. No. Um, but can I go back to your my? I've got a question about your. Yeah. I mean, not your so much a question, but I find it really interesting that this kind of anxiety re results. It's maybe the first time we've really talked about anxiety resulting from a perceived lack in others yeah. than from a perceived lack in oneself. Yeah. And that's really interesting, I think, given the way that <laughs> I feel we're all, that we're all encouraged to approach love in um, terms of the more complete we are ourselves, the more we deserve it or the more we yeah. the more we'll bring to it. I feel that, that life seems to just be like a constant mm -hmm. uh, process of accumulation, whether it's money or power or professional success or beauty or these things. And the more of that we have, the better equipped we are to love other people mm -hmm. and to be enough for other people yeah so I, that's really interesting that that I mean I feel like we've even got to a stage where we're not even thinking about other people we're just thinking about ourselves uh -huh. all the time and I, do, I just I just this flies so in the face of that it really because does. this is saying this is saying something about you is lacking about the other outside of me mm -hmm. and I need to conjure up whether it's a whether if it's a physical object or a symbolic object and fetishize that because that's what covers up your lack. Mm -hmm. That's a really good observation. And the, I think the distinction to be made there is that it, I think it ultimately boils down to differences that Jacques Lacan was making when he was talking about the, the three, the kind of almost like a tripartite model of the, of psychopathology where, uh, the, in the first example that you gave where our society, um, is actually many times, um, telling us, how we can self-improve, you know, how um, there has to be a model where we are trying to do better and, uh, you know, kind of, in, in a sense, in, 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 introspecting, mm -hmm. self-reflecting, etc. Sometimes in a healthy way, but other times in a very harmful, toxic way where we're just encouraged to buy more things to fill up an internal sense of uh, inadequacy or whatever. A lot of advertising is geared towards that. I think that's maybe more the neurotic structure, mm -hmm. which I fall into as well. Like, I mean, I, I, I identify more with that. Uh, Lacan said that the neurotic structure is very much at odds with two other uh, prongs in the kind of tripartite model of psychopathology, where there's a neurotic and there's a psychotic. The psychotic just is kind of opting out of a shared reality. And they've kind of foreclosed the laws of discourse and language and the symbolic order. They just kind of drop out. And then there's more in the kind of sense of chaos that we might perceive that reality as being chaotic. Mm -hmm. Then the third structure is the pervert. Mm -hmm. The pervert is very much coming from almost like... It's not, it's, it's, it's not me, it's you. Kind oh my of. God, that's so interesting. Yeah. Wow. And you need to obey what I tell you. I'm going to set the rules and I'm, mas I'm the master in the situation and 
that's how we maintain our harmony because you have to go along with what I say. And these three things, they're not a division in society. We kind of all, we can be capable of oh, all yeah. of these types yeah. within ourselves. Absolutely. And these types are kind of fighting with each other in our, inside us. Well, I mean, yes and no. If we're strictly speaking about psychopathology, if someone comes in uh, in an analytic session, um, I think that there may be some fluidity in terms of situational and contextual differences where one person may be able to even experience all three structures at various different times and, and even in their history. Mm-hmm. But I think for the most part, there is an argument that's made that the, the categories are a little bit like you, if you fall into one, you tend to be like that mm-hmm. uh, in most of your interactions. Uh, there's not too much overlap. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's well, very. I know it, where we are. Oh, oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm in erotic, definitely. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes I wish I weren't. Oh, yeah. So it would be sometimes so much easier just to be that pervert mm-hmm. who just makes up the... And I say that, that sounds so funny, outside of psychoanalytic realms, per- pervert is so sexualized. This sometimes almost has nothing to do with sex. Mm-hmm. It's about being the one who uh, devises the signifiers in a discourse and then expects others to obey. Um Whereas, yeah, so I, see, I think this is where we're coming from, in a sense. And, uh, and it struck me how we, how we came about finding these films, mm. that it was so unintentional. We hadn't actually set out to make it so, so close. No. But they really did. <laughs> and it was a really strange story, because we were, I, I thought about, I thought of Vertigo mm. in the middle of recording the last episode. Wow. And there was nowhere for me to write it down, or, you know, you can't do that when you're recording an episode. Yeah. Um, and then I forgot it, and I thought all week I was thinking about it, and I couldn't remember what I thought of, and then you emailed me and said, how about Vertigo? <laughs> Which I think is really creepy. Yeah. So we must have just said or done something in the last episode that caused this that caused this idea. Yeah. Or we or we just occupy the same psychic yeah. astral plane. Basically, which I, I think is. I'm, I'm fully convinced we do. Yeah, it's it's quite possible. And in a way, Pretty Woman is an interesting choice as well because it's not the, it's not a film I would normally want to include. In... It's not a film I would normally want to watch. No. But actually. As I said to you before, watching through yeah. this lens, it kind of takes like and dislike out of films completely and just replaces everything with understanding. Yeah, and every everything everything's good if you're if you watch it through some kind of psychoanalytic yeah. gaze. Everything. So, so true. I love that, and yeah. that that's such a for me that's such a great place to come from as a, as a cinema viewer because mm-hmm. then the possibilities are endless. Yeah. We, there's so much. There's so many opportunities to engage. And it's in a, it's in a non-judgmental way. So to start with Vertigo. Mm. So this is a 1958 uh, American film noir. It's a psychological thriller directed and produced by Alfred Hitchcock. And it was based on a novel, uh, D'Entre les Morts, From Among the Dead. I love that. Was it the same writer as the person who wrote uh, Le Diabolique? Ah, you know what? I think... I think so. Because I feel like there was a bidding war yeah. for Diabolique. If you haven't seen Diabolique, see it. Because oh, yeah. it's so good. Um, so there was a bidding war for Diabolique, um, the mm. maker of that film. the mm-hmm. French. I can't remember who directed it, but the French director who directed that yeah. got that novel. Hitchcock lost out to it. That's right. And then kind of bought this as you know a second, second best almost and made this film. 
Um, and then later made Psycho as, and a, it, as yeah. a more shocking version, but with a very similar marketing strategy. Yeah. yeah. It's all, oh, it's all so interesting. It's fascinating. Actually, when you read about that period of Hitchcock's life and yeah. work, there's so there's just so much going on with mm-hmm. uh, you know with other directors and with other influences. Mm. It just really brings everything together in this. Oh, it's so interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating. And th- I have to say, this is the fir- first ever Hitchcock I ever watched back in the day. I mean, we're going back maybe twenty years. Oh. Yeah, and I remember when I watched it, it just mentally like fascinated me so much intellectually but also kind of I felt very disturbed by it mm. which I liked I liked that feeling I was attracted to that feeling well I think audiences at the time had that yeah. because this was not a successful film yeah that's right it wasn't um, and that's actually why Psycho is in black and white because yeah. uh, the Hitchcock couldn't didn't really have the clout after making this film no. so for people to invest a lot of money into his next even riskier idea. Wow. Um, so I think, and I think he eventually took it out of circulation and it kind of got rediscovered later on. Yeah. So that's, and it's weird because you think of this as the most Hitchcock, Hitchcock film <laughs> and the most famous and the most talked about, but there was a point where just no one remembered it and it yeah. was kind of seen as a disaster. Wow. Which is really interesting. It is. Yeah. It is. That's almost unbelievable to, to reconcile. Even, even Hitchcock was kind of disappointed by yeah. it, you know? Gosh. So... Because I just think it's such an accomplished film. It's I mean, incredible. It, yeah, and it's there's so many. I can see already all those kind of blueprints for Lynch, mm-hmm. you know, for David Lynch and kind of identity conf- confusion. So just to kind of give you an idea of what the film is, uh, it stars James Stewart. Great casting here because we're taking a very straight actor, mm-hmm. you know, very sort of everyman. Uh, and then putting him in this completely like uh, crazy world. It is incredible casting, and it changed. I I knew a girl in my masters who, I don't think I think she abandoned it, but she started to write a thesis on what James, um, what Jimmy Stewart is supposed to be. Mm. You know, like I mean, what his person, his like star persona is, because it's so confusing. Yeah, because he's objectively more good looking than Cary Grant and yeah. he's you know but he's not he's never the mm. the the person that gets the girl in those no. early films and then he's got this other sort of line of work where he's a, a pervert and it's yeah. really yeah it's just it was so it was such oh, a good wow. thesis but she just abandoned it and went for something else oh my god but I was so I was so into it that's not something I would want to read for sure yeah me too me because too. James Stewart is a very intriguing performer and he's able to tap into some really dark stuff mm-hmm. He is he he just was that talented, but I like that he was cast in this because he we think we're getting something really straight and safe, mm. but then it ends up becoming a mind fuck. Yeah, and it's just such a I really like that kind of switch. It is great, and he we he does get switched over in the process of this film. You know, yeah. you think you're with especially when someone's a detective, you think you're aligned with them as a viewer. Exactly, and <laughs> you you trust them, and it's the most it's the. I don't know if anyone did that before Hitchcock, but it's the biggest sort of betrayal of you know of trust when yeah. you take a detective and then they t- end up they end up being the bad guy. Yeah, they're so, pathological. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Absolutely, and they they no they no longer even care for the sanctity of the law. They no longer care for the sanctity of just basic human relations mm. there it's, it's all gone out He's the window the monster yeah the of this film yeah, yeah. ultimate creep mm. <laughs> which is again really interesting casting here um 
So yeah, so he, he's forced into early retirement because of an incident when he was in the line of duty, and that caused him to develop acrophobia, which is an extreme fear of heights. And as well as having a vertigo, this false sense of rotational movement. Oh, I thought he was saying agoraphobia. No. And I was like, why? This is very inaccurate and annoying. <laughs> but, and I just like, no. oh, okay, acrophobia. Acrophobia. Yeah, yeah. it's a, such a common thing. It's easy, easily misheard, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. So then he's, he ha he's false, he's sort of forced into uh, early retirement. And then uh, an acquaintance of his, um, so he, he, he gets told to follow um, this, this guy's wife, this guy called Gavin, his wife, Madeline, played by Kim Novak, who appears to be behaving strangely. And so Scotty is brought on to kind of investigate what's going on with Madeline. The whole thing is shot in San Francisco, mm -hmm. which is also interesting. There's some links oh, really? with Pretty Woman there. Um, and yeah, so it's, there's some really great innovation, you know, innovative camera effects in this film in terms of distorting perspective to create disorientation. It's a really interesting film to look at. It's beautifully shot. Um, in fact, uh, what's ca what's called the vertigo effect uh, is something that we first ever see in this film uh, when we see the kind of disorientation um, in a lot of the shots. So, um, just to kind of set up the situation where he's now following this woman and, um, we, we see him kind of look, you know, following her at, at a restaurant called Ernie's. Um, she visits like a florist. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's she, this great shot where he's sort of standing in the dark looking yeah. at her in this oh, vision yeah. of light and color. Yeah. And it really actually kind of establishes him as the pervert that he's going to become, you know, yeah. just this like <laughs> Absolutely. person in the dark watching someone live in full colour. It's yeah. really interesting. Wow, yeah, that's really well put. This warrior who is, um, yeah, I suppose consolidating his entire perspective mm -hmm. on the, the other. Uh, the other is just living their life. Um apparently mm. <laughs> and then um but they're they're kind of shrouded in darkness yeah absolutely this kind of weird relation relational um inequality in a sense and so a lot of those kind of things that he starts to perceive as he follows her he, she goes and visits a museum and she's fixated on this painting where I, there's some similarities between her and the the, the person in the portrait uh so a lady called carlota so there's this kind of mythologized a dimension of the film where um, Madeline is fixated on someone from the past. Mm -hmm. They're holding very similar bouquets of flowers and they have very similar hair. There's that kind of funny, it's a very beautiful hairstyle that creates this effect of we're looking almost into the void. Mm -hmm. It's I love it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love backs of head. I know you do too. I know, yeah. It's, um, uh, it's a great it's a great shot. I've, I think it might, no it's not, but it was my screensaver for a little Oh wow. Yeah. yeah, I love yeah. backs of heads in cinema because they don't feel like they should be there. Yeah, you know they're they're like excess views. You know, that's yeah. why I really like it when I when I get one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So all of this leading up to um, they develop a romance. Actually, they, she falls into the San Francisco Bay. He rescues her. Um, I like that he rescues her and then he just puts her to bed in oh, the yeah. apartment naked. Yeah, and it's it's never really mentioned, but. <laughs> That, all her clothes are hanging all her clothes dry. Are hanging where she can't get them. It's a really when you watch it, knowing that what's going to happen, he turns into a really 
he turns into a really scary person yeah. throughout the film. Yeah. And I really, I re- that really, I felt that when her blue dress is hanging up, another blue dress film. Another blue dress. Is hanging up in the kitchen and she's asleep in the bedroom. Yeah. And he gives her something, he gives her a robe or something. Yeah, it's very but, coercively controlling mm-hmm. right away. Um, and then, but she's very mysterious. She gives a few hints about herself. Enough to kind of get him hooked, mm. and he's obsessed. He becomes a bit obsessed. And uh, all of this leads to a moment in the film. Uh, how do I even describe this? They go to uh, an, this old Spanish church or well, something. Well, it's sort of set up uh, to into, for the audience to believe and for Madeline to believe that she's possessed by this distant, this, this ancestor who was, uh, I suppose, a, a kept woman mm-hmm. and who c- committed suicide out of loneliness and rejection and, and not being not being wanted anymore. Yeah. Um, and that she's just doomed to repeat this same cycle of, and of, of you know, this, this terrible, like, early death, basically, yeah. and that she has no control over it and that it's happening to her. Yeah. And Scully doesn't believe... Doesn't believe the supernatural element. Just thinks that she's associating, you know, various different memories together. Um, That's right. And so he, she says, he has this dream about the Spanish place, and he says, "That's not in Spain. That's just down the road. We'll Mm. go there, and you can see that you've been there before. And it's all just, if you know, it's all just a real memory, and it's real, and there's nothing strange going on." Yeah. And when they get there, she runs into the church, runs up all of these stairs. He can't get up there because he's scared of heights, and she apparently falls to her death and kills herself. Yeah, he apparently witnesses her falling, Mm -hmm. and then is is even kind of re-traumatized, because we can see that he has a very hard time climbing that tower. Mm -hmm. Um, He's getting that vertigo sensation, and his acrophobia can only lead him to go so far up the tower. He can't physically go further. And apparently this has all been planned. This has all been... uh, He's been selected precisely because of his uh, psychological hang-up about Mm -hmm. heights so that he wouldn't reach the top because it had all been planned. Uh, Madeline was actually in cahoots with this guy Gavin, uh, Scotty's acquaintance, um, and they were planning the murder of his real wife. Mm -hmm. And so... The woman who actually felt her death was Gavin's real life wife, mm-hmm. uh, dressed very much the same way with a similar hairstyle as Madeline. Um, and when Madeline reached the top, they did a, he did a switch. So he pushed his wife out and the two of them kind of hid out, hid there for a while until the coast cleared and then they ran off. So ultimately, uh, then we see Scotty... Um, He's sort of used in this sense Mm -hmm. for this couple to get away with this murder. Um, And then he sort of then left his own devices. Yeah, kind of drifts into a depression. Yeah. And has all of this sort of guilt and all of this now unrequited love. Yeah. Um, And he wanders around San Francisco and he sees this girl who looks so much like Madeline. And that's because she's the same woman. But back to her real self, Judy, which Judy. is who's brunette and very colourful yeah. and very common, and yeah. you know, and has a different voice and a different a different way of moving, um, yeah. but is the same person. He doesn't realise that she's the same person, and he, inf- kind of, he essentially tries to buy her. 
yeah pretty much don't go to work i'll take care of you but we're there's going conditions to, there are conditions you're gonna have to wear what i want you to wear and you're gonna have to have your hair done like this and judy stays because she's in love with him yeah and she thinks that she can make him love love the her, real the her. real her just the way she is and that's witless because <laughs> we all know it doesn't work like that. No, because he already has, he's already wedded to his fantasy mm-hmm. of who she has to be. A woman from the past, a, a certain image that's locked into his mind that he's associated with his love for her. Mm-hmm. Her exact her style, her choice of clothes, her makeup, the shoes she wears. And this is where it comes to, you know, for us, um, a film of interest because there are some really extended scenes where he takes her on shopping sprees and makes choices on her behalf. Mm -hmm. She has no say in the matter. He is the one directing her entire makeover, um, right down to the color of her hair, the the exact shade, the color of her nails. Um, He's involved Mm -hmm. in every single step. And we can see her, her emotional agony because she says, will it do it if I look just like her Will that do it? Will you love me? And it almost also implies that if she doesn't look exactly like this fetishized image that he has in mind, that's very almost almost exactly sartorial. It's almost exclusively sartorial. Um, that he he'll be impotent. It's almost it's almost suggested it that is, he's impotent. I, it pretty much is. They don't. They definitely don't have sex no. until. And there's a bit where she comes home and she's had and she's got have she has to wear that suit and she's got those shoes on she's had her hair bleached poor thing and she but she's had she's wearing it the same style that she wears it and the first thing he says is no that's not right as yeah, soon exactly, as she I gave comes exact through the door instructions. yeah and she says well it doesn't we 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 think it doesn't suit me and, yeah. and it doesn't it's horrible like actually horrible really sort of. It's just very Hitchcock blonde yeah, hairstyle, that yeah. sort of all all back off the face. It's very cold. And she's got those lovely little like tendrils, yeah. those little bangs and like curls. And no, he has to That's not acceptable. No. It's not following exactly the letter of his law. Mm-hmm. She has to obey his wishes. He's he's the one, he's a master signifier in that discourse. He's the pervert with a fetish. And if it's not exactly right, he can perform sexually mm-hmm. or erotically. It, it doesn't animate him, whether it's sexual or whatever, relational. Uh, he's like in the dead zone. So she, it's her job to go exactly as, you know, just follow instructions. You know, there's no other, there's no negotiation, you know. So it's, it's really interesting because as soon as she appears with the, the, the precise look that he wants, his desire exactly, that's when they kiss again. And then there's this wonderful camera work where it swirls around them. And as he's embracing her and kissing her, he's, he's back in the stables or wherever they were when they, when they last kissed. And, um, and he, that is, we're led then to believe that he has achieved his ideal fantasy space and that's mm-hmm. where he'll remain. And to me, this kind of thing, this whole business of someone so creepily wedded to a very prescriptive, you know, kind of formula for uh, romantic love that the other has to simply obey and respect the rules of the fetish. It really plays into the fact that without this, these precise objects covering up her lack, because she's a mystery to him. Mm-hmm. He, he's he's full of questions about her. 
who are you? Where did you come from? She has to show him her ID and that's not enough. There's something about her. It's like the, her hairstyle. It creates a kind of like black hole in mm. her hair. It's, there's a castration. There's something that's not quite there about her. There's some center of power that's missing. And that disturbs him because it it animates or enlivens some trauma he has with his own lack. So he can't face that. He can't have that confrontation. It's too traumatic. The same way that he ha he witnessed someone dying as, as someone, as a law enforcement mm -hmm. person. And, you know, he then avoids heights. So to me, he's just constantly trying to cover up what he perceives as something missing in her. And feminine jouissance is full of that. It's full of mystery and the anatomy, you know, the, the female anatomy is, you know. Yeah, it's all hidden. It's all hidden and it's much more mysterious than the phallus. And that's too anxiety provoking mm -hmm. to confront that and to actually say, ah, well, I'm not master of this domain. I'm here to learn. <laughs> so it, it's much easier and convenient to say, I don't want to look at what I have to learn and I don't want to look at what I don't know. I'm here to erect an object to cover up. <laughs> <laughs> That's for all you Freudians out there. Yeah, I know you're was, there. That was very funny. <laughs> so to me, this same exact thing is happening in Pretty Woman. It um, really is. I mean, let's, yeah, maybe we should kind of move between them in this, in this I think we can. Uh, episode. Because, yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting because when I always get a different thing from the films that we discuss than I intend to when I choose them. Mm -hmm. And when I was thinking about shopping, I was really trying to find a um, way of looking and a way of desiring that women had mastery over. Ah, yes. Um, because I think that there's, it, I think, uh, sort of actually shopping and the public space and cinema are all kind of things that kind of had their, that had this very... Um, I'm trying to think of how to put this. They kind of, they're kind of connected to modernism in yeah. the sense that they these things became spaces that women had some kind of mastery over. Uh, there's some kind of extension of the domestic, whereas beforehand women were just inside all the time. Yeah. But department stores and cinemas are sort of two places where women learned how to kind of extend their desire yeah. a little bit. And so I've always thought of it as being such a you know a female thing, and not in that stereotypical women be shopping way <laughs> but in that way of of places that are intended for the desiring gaze of women mm. quite and I think that cinema and shop cinema and the shop the store mm. are very similar in that way mm -hmm. and that's why I don't really agree with Laura Mulvey when she says that the gaze is primarily masculine yeah. and women are you know missing out on it yeah I um, disagree too but I feel and so like these visual spaces and these these kind of visual spaces and these commercial spaces they're so it's it's such a shame in both of these films. I feel like the tragedy is these are spaces that women should have some kind of create like creative freedom and expression and mm. sense of mastery over in both of these films. You know, they get they they're able to go shopping to go. Yeah. You know, which is actually if you think about it, it's essentially quite a creative act. Yeah, but they're both thwarted in yeah. their shopping trips by really just by the patriarchy yeah. in general. Whether it's sort of the patriarchal structure of you know, the rules of, of money and what's acceptable and what's not, or whether it's actually a man coming in there and saying, no, you can't have any of these. You have to have the one I want you to have. These specific objects I've laid out for you. Yes. Mm. Yeah, so um, it's, yeah. We um, There's another film that 
we didn't discuss it because it's just so hard to get. Mm-hmm. There's a film called Female Perversions. Oh yeah, you mentioned this to me. Um, I still haven't been able to locate it. It's great. I'll post something about it on Instagram so people know what I'm talking about. But that's kind of, although that's very much about sort of three women and the way in which they they desire. Mm. And it's got a lot of shopping scenes. It's got a couple of shoplifting scenes. Wow. And I feel like Hitchcock was definitely a person that understood that connection of women like that really maybe did understand women's desire to a certain extent because he has a lot of shopping scenes but he also has a lot of stealing scenes yeah and there's something really nice and secret like i feel like very feminine about those things that sort of uh gorilla perversion (laughs) you know like the underground secret i don't know sort of a secret way to get your kicks yeah a way that has to go under the radar yeah i I don't know and it's empowering yeah Yeah. very empowering it's really yeah but anyway, pretty women, pretty woman. Very lots of very similar scenes. There's literally scenes in both these films where a man says, "I will keep you." Yeah. And one person <laughs> agrees, and the other person yeah. does not. This is it's that it's staggering mm. because so this is now we're talking about the 1990 American romantic comedy directed by Gary Marshall, uh, starring of course Julia Roberts and uh, Richard Gere. This film was a huge box office success. So on a $14 million budget, it made over $450 million. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is crazy, the, the, the hit that it was at the time. It was originally intended to be a kind of dark, cautionary tale um, about class and sex work. Yeah, it was going to have a complete... Yeah. He was going to kick her out of the car at the end. She was going to be addicted to cocaine. Mm-hmm. And she was going to go to Disneyland with her With her, with friend, her roommate. With her roommate yeah. at the end, which is... Reminds me of, um, I thought that there was a scene in it where they talk about Disneyland, but there isn't. They mentioned Cinderella, but it reminded me of uh, Girl Interrupted as well, where they fantasize about going to Disneyland and being different princesses. Oh my God. Um, so then I wonder if (laughs) I, there's, I don't know, there's some kind of connection there a little bit. Yeah, Cinderella, another blue dress. Yeah, they kind of want to occupy their own fairy tale as opposed to relying on the guy to supply that for them, Mm -hmm. which is ultimately what kind of happens here. Yeah. And in Pretty Woman, so this is a very different type of film in one sense because um, he's not stalking her from from the, from the beginning. So mm. he's just this rich guy. He he buys companies um, for large amounts of money. He goes and targets usually family companies, and he buys it out wholesale and then uh, breaks up the company and s- sells the individual parts mm-hmm. to make a profit. So, and then she says something. There's a line in there. She says just, it's like stealing a car and, and selling, uh, the parts. selling the parts. Because, yes, but legal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is really, which in a way, I mean, legal only because it was deregulated yeah. in, you know, Reaganomics. Mm-hmm. But, but actually a lot of the stuff that he was doing at one time and in, in, in not too long ago was considered to be illegal. Yeah, and so, it's definitely unethical. It's like, very he's unethical. He's a very unethical person. Yeah, he's very predatory. He yeah. goes after people. He has no concern for, like, the sentimental value in certain companies, the way they've been built. Mm-hmm. Um, he just doesn't care. He just wants to put a wrecking ball through all that stuff yeah. and just do his own thing. He's very predatory about that. So we see him driving this fancy car that he can't, doesn't actually know how to drive properly. He doesn't drive the stick. Mm-hmm. And his car stalls on Hollywood Boulevard. And this is when Vivian Ward, um, played by Julia Roberts, she's um, happens to be at that corner. Um, she's a sex worker. And she's then encouraged by her friend and roommate kid to go after this guy. 
to seduce him and you know um, and to not take less than a hundred dollars that's right mm. that's the instruction and then this all leads to actually quite a funny to me it's a very comical setup because of how sassy she is um, she ends up having to drive the car because it turns out she has a lot of knowledge about cars um, the people she used to know back in her hometown used to it's just a trope, isn't it? You have to, you have to set up. You, you have to. A woman has to know something about cars in order to be not like, not like the other girls. I know. It's so irritating. She's kind of like a manic pixie dream girl. Yeah. You know, she's the proto of that kind. You know, she's really only there to change his attitude to life. Yeah. She's not there to really learn and grow herself. No. No, she only serves the function of surprising him. Yes, exactly. Because he says, oh, I'm not often surprised by people, yeah. but you're an exception. Just like, I'm surprised by people a whole lot. They, they shock the hell out of me. <laughs> that was a good response. actually a good response, yeah. But he was so patronizing with it, but that was meant to be taken as a nice thing. Oh, yeah. Which is crazy. Anyway, they go to his penthouse at the, what was it, the Wiltshire Beverly Hotel, mm -hmm. this exclusive hotel in Beverly Hills. Um... From a class perspective, a million miles away from Hollywood Boulevard, where she had just been. Mm -hmm. So, right away, he's very preoccupied with how she looks entering this hotel. She, he tells her to cover up with his overcoat. She's really funny. <laughs> I find her behavior very funny. Like, um, I like I like her, actually. Um, yeah, she is more likable than I remembered her. Being. Yeah. But also, I was really shocked by... Hmm. Just his the complete, I mean, his complete lack of shame. Yeah. Picking, like, picking someone up off the street and yeah. bringing them back for sex. Yeah. He's very, you know, he, he does give her a coat, but he's, it's all very out in the open. Like, yeah. He's got this, he's, you know, he's got the right to do this. Oh, yeah. And he's uh, entitled. He's entitled. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, because he's got so much money, he's more entitled than someone, if, than someone who has less money to do oh, that. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, he's already he's already elevated himself on a pedestal that mm. normal rules might not apply. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. And um, when they end up in the whole, in the penthouse, um, one of the first things that struck me is that he he chooses the penthouse because it's the best. It's on the top floor, but he has a he has a fear he's of heights. heights. Oh my god, I didn't think about that. He does have a fear of heights. He doesn't go out on the balcony. Yes. When they go to the opera, he he, he chooses the balcony because it's the best. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't, but he doesn't want to look down. It. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't think about that. So there's some kind of acro. I mean, there is an acrophobia there. We yeah. don't we don't hear about vertigo, but there's something there. For me, the heights thing, it, it associates falling. He doesn't want to fall because he doesn't want to confront the trauma of. Um, the phallus, which must rise and fall, mm -hmm. and he doesn't want to fall in love. Oh my goodness! I didn't think about this. And you know that I've been having like, reoccurring like night terrors oh, yeah. about falling. Yeah. Recently, and we had this exact same conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so true. Yeah, I had one the other day, and it was yeah. um, that I was positive I was going to like slide off the roof of the Empire State Building. Oh my gosh. That's really scary. It was really, I've never been to the Empire State Building. I don't know why I chose that one, but I couldn't go back to sleep. It was mm. really scary. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. 
That's fall. I mean, the falling thing in dreams is extremely common. Mm -hmm. Usually, you know, psychoanalysts don't as as associate uh, already built-in meaning into symbols. Yeah. It's always very personal. Well, but this is very true of both of them. I think so yeah. because they're because I believe they are both fetishists mm -hmm. uh, in very maybe different ways. But because they're kind of in that pervert structure of already claiming the position of master in the dynamic, they're not neurotic. They're not self-doubting. They're imposing their own will mm -hmm. onto the other. And so in a way, they've kind of like, they, they, they claim a certain infallibility, a certain kind of level of power that they don't want to compromise. And the other has to just follow along. Otherwise, it won't work. There has to be an obedience to the discourse. Um... And I think this perturbs him because she, he sees her, you know, Edward, he sees Vivian as uh, someone who is a little bit more like impulsive. Uh, there's risk attached to her. There's a kind of level of uncertainty. Um, he doesn't actually know that much about her. And also there's a right away because it's in the, it's 1990 there was that big kind of social insecurity about HIV mm -hmm. and kind of risky sexual behavior and that's already dealt with in the film because she she talks about how she's saved she goes to the clinic she mm -hmm. gets checked um, and she she's got like a tool belt of condoms <laughs> yeah a buffet of safety a buffet of safety that's how yeah. he that's, yeah. yeah, all kinds of different flavors and colors yeah. and the gold coin, you know, so funny. So the point is that but she still presents that element of risk. He doesn't want to necessarily go along with everything about her because she's too, you know, there's something, something that doesn't promote that need for control that he has. So anyway, uh, fast forward into the fact that he... He has to stay in Los Angeles for business. He's got various social functions related to his business. He's trying to buy out this company, this family company, um, and then sell it, sell it off in multiple parts. He needs her there for, just for the kind of optics, mm -hmm. to have a date, to have a plus one. So he invites her to stay not just for the night or an hour, but for a whole week. And they negotiate the terms. She's quite good about like asserting her place in terms of um, the payment that she wants. Mm -hmm. And this is the bit where we get to the shopping because now she has to change her look. She can't be seen in these social situations, these high prestige situations um, with a bunch of rich people um, in that other class of society wearing the clothes that she turned up in. So... Mm -hmm some famous scenes coming up. She goes to Rodeo Drive, dressed as she was the night before, with Edward's money, but the shopkeepers are rude to her. Um, they looked, they just judge her based on how she entered and they don't, they don't want to, they don't want to wait on her. They don't want to give her advice. They don't want to sell her anything um, because of the way she looks and she has to turn to the kindness of the hotel manager to help her, put her in touch with a much more you know, uh, compassionate, polite person. Mm -hmm. And it's, I wonder now, do you think that when also at, at one point Edward accompanies her on one of these shopping trips and she gets a complete makeover all the way down to the, the shopping montage, which yes. is such a trope in rom-coms. We see people trying out clothes and it's to like some pop very songs. Very strange early 90s outfits. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and they and there's a bit where she, there's a bit there's yeah. a bit in there where she um, gets a tie for him. Oh yeah, she gets a tie off the off the, right off. the clerks. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is I don't know. <laughs> it's just such a different approach to shopping, but you know, but it's it's like very similar. You know, she's she gets something for him, and actually, every, all of it's for him. Oh really. yeah, all of it is for him. All of it is for him. Exactly because it kind of for me harks back to. Um, Holly Golightly, mm -hmm. you know, and this kind of transformation of the, um, and I use this term uh, affectionately, gutter snipe. Yeah, you know, uh, I I I like that oh, term. Oh, um, my fair lady. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It is very similar. Yeah, and they do kind of strip her of signifiers, but and it's uh it's interesting because she does say something about her own clothes. Yeah, she says. There's a bit where they're at the races, yeah. And his lawyer friend comes on to her, yeah. And she says to him, "If I was wearing my own clothes, I would have been able to deal with it." Oh yeah, that's right. And so he's like, he's given her all of these things, but he's taken away her ability to stand up for herself and her ability to be authentic and her ability to, I don't operate in a, I don't know, to be orificeless. I suppose, like we said last week, unfuckable. But, yeah, he's made her. He's made her completely fuckable by putting her in these acceptably these clothes are acceptable to everyone around her that's right that's right absolutely he's yeah you're quite right because she, he's also removed her, all her defenses yeah. to know how to act in those situations where she might have been vulnerable and that's it's so interesting that you know her clothes beforehand are they're just signifiers of they're kind of really porny like signifiers yeah. of sexuality but they do kind of make her unfuckable and unfuckwithable yeah those, those really high boots and that <laughs> She I'm, and the wig. And the, yeah. yeah, she's really actually. She that's like kind of almost like an Anna Winter wig that she's got on that bob. It does really make her. It make, yeah. It make it makes her protected yeah. in a way that those kind of all of those nice expensive suits and dresses don't at all. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So in some sense, even though he's not as quite as controlling in terms of exactly laying out. This is the exact garment I want you to wear. This is the hairstyle I want you to choose. This is the jewelry. You know, there she there is some kind of uh, I suppose leverage or some kind of where some some space where she feels able to choose some kind of freedom uh, between outfits, but it's very much still very prescribed in terms of luxury, mm -hmm. in terms of a certain look that is cons more conservative socially. Um, and then, sorry, I said Holly Golightly. Of course, I meant Eliza Doolittle. I was thinking, yeah, but, the, but another, it's very, another but it's the same. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, it's the same thing mm -hmm. because ultimately, um, she, it, it's it's all that's what's fetishized. It's the fact that her her very sexuality, her her decision to, um, you know, commodify her sexuality to, to survive. That's too threatening mm -hmm. to consider on on its own merits. So that has to be covered up with all the fetishized symbol of, symbols of um, a certain class of society, polite bourgeois society. And she needs to then adorn herself with the symbols of that class and cover up that unknowable aspect of herself. You know, maybe her trauma, mm -hmm. uh, maybe uh, a certain life she had beforehand growing up 
that led her to where she was and the choices she made. Yeah. Those things cannot be engaged with directly. They're too confronting. And they're too confronting for Hollywood as well because they all seem like they've been cut out of the script. Oh, yeah. There's bits where she kind of alludes to, yeah. she says, how, you know, why do men know how to hit a woman just exactly like that? And uh, he's just going to dust her off and, and doesn't address it. No. You know? So she's literally just admitted that she's been physically assaulted more than once mm -hmm. and that's not picked up on. <laughs> it's just like, it's all just kind of casually cast aside. Mm -hmm. So the, her, her whole being is, is too problematic. It's too unknowable. It's too, there's too much mystery and, and, and it's like a black hole. But it's, it's one, it's wanton unknowability though. It's yeah. like that meme where the, the man's saying, it's like this sort of an, an like a uh, sort of historical like painting of a man and a woman and he's saying yeah. women such a mystery and she's like well actually if you would just listen he goes so unknowable like, <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's kind of that, that's so yeah. true because actually she's quite articulate she's as very and articulate she tells him a lot about herself she does when yeah. she's prompted and when she, there's more asked about herself mm -hmm. on the rare occasions she does she's provide an answer you know? she's expressive like she'll say uh, you know, when she says something like, it's easier to believe the bad stuff. Yeah. You know, she there is that vulnerability. You know, she's quite sassy. Um, she is prepared to share about herself. Is she she is, desperately wants to talk about herself yeah. all the time. She'll do it to anyone. Yeah. You know, when she's in the room with the hotel manager, she just tells him her, her whole day, you know, I've got this money, I've got to get this thing, no one will help me. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it doesn't take, it's not that she's hiding. No. At all. And it's the same with Judy. They're not hiding. They're no. not. Um, they're not keeping things apart from with Judy. That's the, so the true. Thing. But they're not keeping themselves from anyone. No, they're not these Garbo-esque kind of reclu recluses exactly. who, you know, they're sort of ice queens. We don't quite know. They're there. Yeah. You know, there there is a possibility to approach. Yeah, no. What they what is wanted is the ice queen. You know, yeah. what is wanted is the blonde wig in the beginning and Madeline's bleach blonde hair. Absolutely. That's one. It's that you don't you don't want these chatty brunettes. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants a chatty it's brunette. It's so true. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's so true. And I think that um, what kind of ends up happening is that because she now has to wear his symbols for fitting in mm -hmm. to these high class places, um, she I think she starts to perceive the the, the cost of that. Mm -hmm. And so when they go to various events and she, I think that's particularly with the, when she goes out to dinner with those clients, uh, the family business that Edward is trying to destroy. Um, I think they, I think they quite like Vivian. Yeah, they do. Um, they think she's really sweet. Yeah. And, and very authentic. They're authentic. And their authenticity comes out in response to hers. Yeah. And that's really, it's a really nice moment. Yeah. But I think the other thing that I thought of in this, um, these two films was, um, that you watch these people, you know, you watch these women who are sort of being controlled by this uh, kind of male mm. symbolic structure of what they've perceived, you know, the, the people's visual identity are. But then there are also characters, and sometimes the same characters, sometimes different characters, who are unable to, who are unable to do that and who are very frustrated because of it. They, they don't understand yeah. how to get pleasure from... They don't understand how to get pleasure from desire yeah. at all. And in Pretty Woman, it's his associate, who's the lawyer, who says, you know, maybe if I fuck you, I'll be happy too. Oh, you know, yeah. and he doesn't. It doesn't mean maybe if I like fall in love with you, I'll be happy too. It means maybe if I buy you as well, yeah. then I can I can feel like how I perceive Edward to Edward feel. to feel. 
and it's uh, it's a really interesting moment of frustration because it's someone that doesn't know how to desire, how to or doesn't necessarily understand that desire does not always lead to pleasure. Yeah. Whereas I think both of these women really understand that desire does not always lead to pleasure. All of the women in these films, they understand that. Mm. Judy commits herself to that when she stays. Her decision is, I desire this person, and so I'm going to take unhappiness. Mm. And it's and it's the same with you know both of these women. They mm-hmm. don't necessarily, they're not going to take unhappiness, but they're going to accept unhappiness because it's better than to try and get pleasure. Yeah. You know, they have this conversation, you know, at the end and and Kit's trying to persuade her to stay and she and she she won't. She won't no. stay and accept this longing feeling with nothing with nothing in return. Yeah, because w- she knows very well that if 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 she accepts the terms that he's laid out, I mean, she just has to obey his instructions. Yeah. She's just there as a kind of you know, she could be very easily substituted by someone else who wants to comply to the rules of the fetish. Mm-hmm. That, you know, you take this money and you go shopping and you look the way I want you to look. Yeah. And you fit into the places I want to go. And you're just, you're you're an accessory. Yeah. And, and I think that they'd rather, she'd rather be a sex worker. Yeah. Which she doesn't necessarily enjoy. No. But she'd rather be unhappy and, she'd rather be unhappy and desiring than to try and be frustrated by that idea that what you buy doesn't isn't gonna fill that void you know whereas someone oh yeah someone like edward will just it doesn't make that connection that you don't always have to get something out of what you what you want Mm. and it's the same with scotty he doesn't understand that you don't like it's that both of these men don't understand that that living is not necessarily getting what you want, yeah. or it not necessarily making you happy, and that these women, all of the women in this in these films, do understand. They do understand that that, that, that happiness is a you know it's a coincidence or a bonus, but it's yeah. not. You can't you can't exchange money for it, and no. you can't you can't <laughs> force it to happen. That's such a good point. I just find that really that really beautiful, and yeah, and I think and that's why you need that other character, that lawyer. What's his name? Oh yeah, Stucky. Stucky. Yeah, you need him. You need him because that's it's it's sort of set up as this, you know, like damsel in distress moment. Mm-hmm. But what it is is someone articulating and they don't understand how to shop. No. They don't. You know, they haven't grasped it, and <laughs> it's that sort of same frustration that attacks all of us from time to time. Mm-hmm. Of like, what is what could I get that would make me mm-hmm. like that? Mm-hmm. And so he's actually kind of he's sort of representative of all of us in a way that's sort of ultimate consumer. Yeah. And she's very representative of having accepted yeah. that maybe she can't afford something. Yeah. Which is sort of the ultimate kind of peace for all of us. We, we wow. you know, to accept that maybe it's just the price is just too high and you shouldn't go shopping today. Mm. <laughs> wow, that's so deep. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I really, I hadn't, I hadn't considered that, that 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 is so true because the pervert structure is so fixated on the result, on the object that's covering up that other thing that's unknowable. And that's why Edward has to make so much money Yeah, because it's, it costs so much to to live your life that way Uh because you constantly have to be throwing, you you constantly have to be ordering things and yeah. buying things in order to you know to have this perfect scene all the time and some of us don't want to work like that no and, and that's why it also suits him to hold relationships the way he does because he says to Vivian at the end of their week together he says to her 
you know, this doesn't have to come to an end. I can set you up with a great apartment and a car and I'll visit you. You know, I'll, 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 I'll just finance you. I'll finance your, and then she, she, that's, she finds that offensive. Mm -hmm. And when he says, oh, it'll get you off the streets. And she says, that's just geography. Yeah. I really like that line. It's a really nice line. Would you take it? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) If I were single. Yeah. Obviously, um, if I was single, I'd be very I, in London. Um, I'd be very tempted to take it because it's so expensive to live in London, and the um, the real estate here is ridiculous. Um, would you? Not if I was in love. No, nah, yeah, not if you were in love. Yeah, that that's a good answer because if you're in love, it complicates the whole thing. Mm-hmm. If it's just an exchange, if it's just like a pure, a neat. Uh, division of, of things like that then you can compartmentalize your feelings and it's fine but you can't compartmentalize love it's too chaotic that's such a good answer mm. and it's like I think that um, you know Scotty is trying to revive the woman that he thought was dead and reanimate Judy not knowing it's the same woman but it's it's just he should have known it's the same I woman know. you know and it's that obsession with a dead woman yeah. with wanting with wanting her to be dead exactly actually, wanting her that to prevents be dead. him from seeing that it's the same he's got exactly the same thing yeah he's completely it's, in denial yeah. he's absolutely in denial because it's so clear it's the same actor it's the same performer yeah. it's just slightly different makeup it's Kim Novak it's Kim Scotty. Novak <laughs> hello like what kind of detective are but yeah but this is what's called scotomization it's much more than denial it's literally an inability to see what's in front of you you called it what? scotomization scotomization oh my god scotty I just I just heard that Wow. Oh my God. So this is a real thing. You know, do you ever think when we're recording these podcasts that everything is everything yeah. and the same thing and then your head That's explodes? Insane. That's so weird. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, scotomization is a real thing in psychoanalysis. It's a, it's a Freudian term for, it's it, he called it a circumscribed um, vision where it's like an, a real life amnesia and time where you can see what's like something is right in front of you some physical thing is in front of you but you can't see it it's almost psychotic um and that's i think that's what's happening to him like yeah. he, he 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 knows very well on some level it's her but he doesn't want to admit it and he doesn't want to acknowledge what he's seeing and he's trying to reanimate a dead woman, as I think, as you rightly say, mm. because ultimately he does want her to be dead. And ultimately, it makes me think of, um, I can't help but compare it to also Edward, who, even though Vivian is, you know, he's just met her. She's not a reminder of anything past, mm-hmm. but she's, di- in her, in his mind, in his perception, she's died a social death because she's having to rely on sex work to survive so he's kind of reanimating her to the land of the living in his class by the way i can't take credit for that my husband paul said that he said social death and i was like i'm taking i'm making that so thank you paul wow (laughs) my goodness i know really clever that's very clever but ultimately it did remind me of something it reminded me of jeffrey dahmer because jeffrey dahmer used to seduce men in clubs bring him back to his apartment this is pretty disgusting. Just for, uh, yeah, trigger warning. <laughs> trigger warning. 
serial killer stuff coming at you. But in, rather, rather than right away killing them, he would drill a hole in their skull so that he would just make them brain dead so that he would at least they would for a few hours even sometimes even almost a day they would be alive the other other organs were functioning and he would sit and watch tv with them mm. brain dead victims because he didn't want someone to talk back to him he didn't want someone to like argue or create some tension or conflict he wanted the companionship but like someone almost dead okay. at least brain dead and that's what these men want too as well. I mean, on some level. They don't want the risk or potential trauma of conflict or confronting the other's desire. So it has to be that fetishistic way of engaging very much through the mechanism of shopping and clothes and their and how they look. It's all very... It's just pure coercive control. Wow. You know? That is I think. dark. That's dark. I kind of knew that, but I thought that it was a myth. I didn't think that was true. That's really dark. I think um, so. I think that's what's happening. Well, this seems like a good place to end I it. I think it is a good place to end it. Also, we're expecting our guest for our next Yeah. Episode, so. Yeah. Yeah. We'll continue our talk on fashion films next time. We're going to be talking a little bit about makeup. Yeah. Bye. Bye.